0: welcome you're listening to the green majority here on ciut eighty-nine point five fm i am your host Saren caser well one of your hosts i have co-hosts The true Saren caser uh you're listening here on ciut possibly live possibly on our podcast possibly in outer space or possibly on a very appreciated uh community radio partner across yes. the country internationally and as i said space um <laughs> mostly space mostly space um Getting off this planet, been on the brain a lot recently, I guess, this whole repeating space thing. But uh, I digress. Before, I don't want to I don't want to steal Dave's news headlines here about getting off Earth. <laughs> um, I have Stefan and Dave with me, as per usual. Megan is silently doing her diligence in the tech booth. And we're going to start this week, I believe, Dave, I, I have to preface the show. I'm not going to preface all the news stories, but I'll just preface it as, like, uh, we got an email about having, the, but the show's been a little dark recently. I'm afraid I can't offer you any reprieve this week. Um, so we're going to start you off uh, in Cape Town and then... <laughs> Arguably, it goes downhill from there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We start off with a water crisis and we go downhill after that. So, uh, As an offering, though, I'm going to try and be really amusing today.
1: Well, there we go. Uh, and, <laughs> and you know, we're doing this all under the specter of Hurricane Florence making landfall in, in North Carolina. So uh, we will cover that uh, likely next week, given that sort of it's an ongoing news story. But if you're in North Carolina and listening to this, I have two questions. One, Well, I have one question, one statement. Question, how? Statement, you should evacuate mm. uh, or have already evacuated. Uh, there are, there are some st- storm surges already in excess of nine feet uh, and it is terrifying. Uh, but the, from excess of water to lack of water, uh, the segue is over to Cape town.
2: Yes. Thank you, Stefan. So all but one province in South Africa are controlled by the African national Congress or ANC, which is Nelson Mandela's old party that took power in the early nineties after the death of apartheid. That province is the Western Cape, which is home to Cape Town, and is held by the Democratic Alliance, which is a market-oriented liberalist party in comparison to the more socialist, social-democratic, and black nationalist ANC. As the only opposition party to control a province... And with a much whiter leadership, the Democratic Alliance is used to standoffs with the ANC and the tensions inherent in the post-apartheid politics of a country, which still which is still very unequal and economically segregated along racial lines. Over the past year or so, however, the DA found themselves and their province in an even tighter spot when they began to forcibly limit the water supply of Cape Town residents in order to avoid what they predicted would be a day zero, when the city's water taps would run dry due to an ongoing drought linked to climate change. Day zero was going to fall, they said, some, sometime between March and May this year, if they did not drastically restrict water usage. The government imposed large fines on households using more water than allotted and began a massive social engineering campaign of public shaming, encouraging people to spy on their neighbors' water habits. The fallout from their policies sparked an uproar that inflamed racial and class divides in the city and profoundly disrupted its outwardly copacetic image. Many argued that Day Zero was never going to happen and that it was caused by the out-of-touch white elite trying to mask their mismanagement of water resources and place the burden on poorer non-white households. Amidst the turmoil, the Democratic Alliance Party's leader tried to reassure the public, stating, quote, Day zero is still a very real possibility during the 2019 summer months if we do not have significant rainfall this winter. I want to reiterate, and cannot stress enough, that we need to keep at current consumption levels until at least the winter rainfall. The ANC and the Democratic Alliance began blaming each other for exacerbating the problem, which the latter, which, with the latter criticizing the ANC for allegedly denying help from Israel, which is famous for its water conservation techniques, as South Africa is currently boycotting the country in support of Palestine. Van R. Newkirk II, who researched and wrote this story for The Atlantic, notes, last July, when confronted on Twitter by a black user who said that black residents in areas without running home water had experienced day zero from birth, the province's leader, Helen Zeal, who is white, responded with, quote, It must be a relief that you weren't burdened by the legacy of a colonial water piping system. Newkirk adds, Zeal, who's faced criticism for previous statements in defense of colonialism, has since been officially suspended from DA party activities. Amidst the unrest, Cape Town's mayor was eventually stripped of all power, but indeed, Z Day Zero was avoided. The city's deputy mayor told the Atlantic, quote, Cape Town is an example of what is achievable under these conditions of stress. People's relationship to water changed. You saw how we got the consumption down dramatically. It's only possible because millions of people have proactively gone out and worked very hard to get their consumption down and changed their habits dramatically. Newkirk writes, quote, In its march to slash water consumption drastically, This metropolis of four million people became a harbinger of how water will constrain global cities in the future and how climate change will bring turmoil and a new slate of challenges to places where class and racial divides are deep. Day zero is still hypothetical, but Cape Town's reality will soon impact many global cities, where water will become a constant concern and democracy will become contingent upon the taps. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple things to pull out of here. And actually, that was a slightly uh, more positive story uh, than we have in previous in that it does it does actually highlight the power of which, if you effectively manage to mobilize uh, the community, are able to uh, you know, mitigate some of these some of these disasters. This is, you know, I, I will admit when we first supported the story, I sort of presumed that daisier was inevitable. I, I, I did not exist. I did not have the same level of belief uh, in, in Cape Town's residents to uh, to mitigate their water usage. Um, and, and yet, I, I think the that sort of ending piece there about how this is going to be a should be understood as a as a, as a harbinger for future and other cities to pay attention to, I think it's really important. And especially at a context of how many places that don't have sort of, you know, especially all of California is going to basically experience this. Um, And and a lot of other places that don't have sort of consistent water, uh, new places for water, do really need to start figuring out how they're going to manage these questions. And it's interesting because I had a a conversation last night, actually, sort of about about. How lucky uh, we have been that no true cata- catastrophe has occurred during the Trump presidency from a standpoint of like, um, you know, the nothing that was would be hard for a competent leader to deal with has occurred. Um, uh, obviously, uh, the hurricane that hit um, that hit Puerto Rico ended up being a catastrophe, however, th- 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 of their own making for, because they basically ignored it. And, and and so I think that what's interesting about this is that this this sort of bit about how much these types of constraints will start impacting the sort of broader world and start impacting the, these 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 Uh, these cities and and provinces and in countries really actually I think highlights the importance of ensuring you have competent leaders (laughs) Um, and or or at least you know a a set of people who are able to to rally around trying to actually solve the problem uh, instead of you know sort of denying it or anything else like that Uh, now and and that's the fact of how this is sort of playing out in, in South Africa sort of shows the ways that it can Play along and will play along these different sort of historical lines and how much attention you have to pay in each city about what and how to Expect these things to happen, you know um, Even in America right now, you can see how how currently it's even playing out that some places get clean water and some places don't you know these uh, you know, Flint, Michigan still remains without clean water while while we are still pumping billions of billions and billions of liters of, of, of fresh water all throughout the country uh, and so all of these things I think need to be sort of sort of looked into uh, in regards to, to Cape Town and I do think that it's interesting to sort of look at a place that successfully managed to cut its water usage at least now <laughs> but it but this specter of day zero will will probably hang over this Cape Town for for quite some time if not
2: forever and there's a country at the bottom of Africa and on the edge of the ocean that already uses uh, less than half the amount of daily water that the average American uh, would use
1: exactly yeah yeah so they, they already have to do so much yeah they're already doing so much more than 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 we are
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and, the, and and what's interesting is that the the important thing to hear note is that I, there in previous when we, when we covered this previously, we talked briefly about how some people are pushing for desalinization as a solution uh, and it mm-hmm. should be noted that they still that even at this point when day zero is coming up, that remains still
0: prohibitively expensive, right like and, the fact and, that it's still that expensive so let's let's be really specific why thank you for mentioning that I, 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 let, let, let's be incredibly clear about why. Because it's massively energy intensive. Oh, yeah. Massively energy intensive. So quick. Well, we have a problem with generating. I just want to remind that because like desalinization may have to be a thing that we have to look at. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's like literally trying to drink yourself sober. Yeah, Um. Yeah. you know, you'll do it if you're like about to dehydrate to death as like a like one in a million while well, it's this or I die. But like this is not a good option. Yeah, it exacerbates the problem. I just I, every time we mention desalination, we just have to repeat that. I think yeah, it, it would, is not a solution mm-hmm. that we should be like, hey, maybe we should invest in that. No, yeah. no, it's a it's, terrible idea. It's just very.
1: Yeah. It's, it's incredibly. So for those folks, who know, uh, desalination at at base is really just taking a hose water, evaporating it and then pulling out all the salt. Um, and so yeah, and it just is just so so expensive and then or, feeding it or to or cows purchase. for hamburgers <laughs> exactly well That's the thing right like that's the part of it. That's the part of it often I think where we end up getting to is this something else just become so expensive right like, or, or something like or like all the other Ideas of just using less water become or is still better than than trying to find a way for more um, Who's feeding
2: the salt water to the cows
0: no, 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 no one seems to.
2: The point is, so
1: you're, using you're paying the water.
0: to desalinate water to then give it 800 liters of water oh, per pound yeah. of beef for a hamburger that you'll then pay 75 dollars
1: for, <laughs> or, or 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 to you know, or to keep uh, to keep the the golf the golf greens. Uh, yeah. I'm sure they'll subsidize the meat engine. Oh, though. it'll be it'll be fine. It'll oh, be yeah, fine. Exactly. McDonald's will be fine. <laughs> um, uh, but we wanted to get to to Ford as well in this section, um, and so let's uh, let's let's jump right over there.
2: All right, so back to Ontario from South Africa. Ontario's new premier Doug Ford has a second lawsuit on his hands, as Greenpeace has launched action against the progressive conservatives for axing the cap-and-trade system without any public consultation, as protected and required under the Environmental Bill of Rights. Ecojustice lawyer Charles Hatt states, We're suing to remind the premier that winning an election does not give his government carte blanche to ignore the statutory rights of Ontarians to be consulted on major changes to the laws and regulations that protect them from climate change. The cap-and-trade was brought in by the previous Liberal government under Kathleen Wynne and was already charting revenues of $3 billion a year, which went into green programs like subsidizing energy efficiency in households. The reason Ford gives for ending the cap-and-trade is that it will save the average Ontario family slightly less than $22 a month in energy and fuel use, as well as what they call other indirect costs. In July, Doug Ford summed up his, his position in a tweet, writing, quote, No dollar is better spent than the dollar that is left in the pockets of the taxpayer. Hashtag throne speech.
0: <laughs> Quickly, quantifiably false. <laughs> Carry
2: on. Greenpeace and Ecojustice have managed to secure an expedited hearing which means their court date will fall before the finalization of the legislation to kill the program. The Progressive Conservatives' legal argument revolves around the idea that the electoral campaign has represented sufficient public consultation, claiming that since the PCs said that they would end it and they were elected, the people have spoken and all is well and good. But the law also states that the PCs have to have an alternative climate plan with clear targets, which they have yet to produce, Keith Stewart of Greenpeace told the National Observer, quote, "We're asking to put the brakes on this particular runaway train, to force them to listen to the public they claim to represent and listen to scientists and groups like ours before gutting Ontario's strategy for dealing with climate change. You have to actually prove that you've thought about this and talk to people before uh, talk to people about it before you do something that's rash and ill-considered." We're trying to stop them from passing a really bad law on climate change because this is too important to turn into a political football.
1: So this is this is not the lawsuit that I would be worried about if I was if I was uh, if I was Doug Ford. Uh, not because I don't think it's important, and not because I don't think it's valuable uh, to push them, but this lawsuit is is the first I think of the of the of the one. And this one you know you can you can push and get some things going but but you're but you're not going to end up probably spending a ton of money to not do this. This is sort of a, a for, and and what if I if who I would be concerned by Ontario government and if I were them specifically are the places like I've mentioned this before on the show, Enbridge and these other folks who have actually purchased uh, carbon credits who the Ontario government has obviously no intention of returning. Uh, or at least they've in no way indicated they have intention of returning and what's interesting about what's happened this week if you have not been following in in the city of Toronto and we forgive you and we forgive if that's you because it's depressing um, is uh, is the the Ford has uh, decided to use the notwithstanding clause to basically, for the first time ever in Ontario's history, suspend the Charter of Rights and Freedoms <coughs> so that he can ensure that we have fewer councillors. Because apparently, suspending our basic human rights is worth it for him on this particular issue.
0: In case you've never heard of the notwithstanding clause before, that's because nobody's ever used it!
1: Well, in Ontario. <coughs> uh, I believe it may have been used other places. <laughs> uh, but yes, and, and, it, and, and that is actually what it's doing. And But the more concerning part of this is that in, when he said he was using it, he also said, I intend to use this m- again. He didn't just say, I'm using this one time because it's somehow the most important he thing. He will not be shy. He will not be shy in using it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that is where, if I'm Enbridge, I'm concerned. Because that is where mm-hmm. they can just take your money. Like the two point something billion dollars that is now sitting in Ontario, that is Ontario's coffers because they sold carbon credits. There is no recourse if they use this clause. To get to do this Mm -hmm. like that is there is you are just the entire government has just stolen your money Mm -hmm. and and me I point out just because apparently I, I I'm on this train recently that that is not exactly how you say you're open for business. Uh, if you are if you're a pro business organization, in fact, most trade clauses, like you know, uh, we've, uh, most trade clauses that, that include or most most trade agreements that have these sort of secret tribunal, these tribunals that, that leftists uh and, and, and often are
0: fighting against, are created almost specifically for this exact purpose in, in fact if i can just really quickly mm. rewind us that was one of the specific things that we talked about that i'm blanking on his name but we had a, a legal expert on mm. international trade agreements on the program about a year yeah. and a half ago and that was one of the specific points about things that we should be concerned yeah which is that they're going to set the rules in a way that we can't review them um and they might not be to our advantage right but the the idea was like the whole point of these things is to lock in certain situations so that these businesses can plan their empires over the next 10 to 20 to 30 years yeah and and what is happening currently is
1: like, like literally they, they have these trade agreements with these organization places so that these tribunals can avoid the government basically saying we're taking your assets and that is exactly what the Ontario government has decided it's going to do Sounds an
0: awful lot like communism, <laughs> the government taking private things and using it for its own purposes well, to further whatever mutual benefit they decide that's that's for the people, but whatever they decide it to be, this well, is sounding awfully communist. Well, well, this is this
1: is the part this is the part that I actually cannot fully fathom, is and I wish I could experience
0: just to see the vitriol that would occur. I'm officially renaming Ford Pinochet. So.
1: <laughs> um, imagine. If Rachel Notley, in her first year, uh, in, within two months of coming into power in Alberta, had ended all subsidies to the oil and gas industry, uh, had basically said, we're taking your money and not giving you anything, uh, and then had just decided to just undo elections within, uh, within say, Calgary. Can you imagine the response from the from the right wing of this country if if that had occurred? Like it, it's just like even just one of those three things, it would be apocalyptic. It would be proof that the, that, that, that no one is more anti-business than the NDP. It would be unbelievable.
0: If if argue let's say say the Green Party proposed that as a thing to do yeah. and in the next election that is so off the scale that Justin Trudeau would actually pivot right <laughs> to say how extreme that is. Like he would, he would pivot to the to the right of that. Oh yeah, and he would attack it. Like oh. that's how far off the The NDP side that would is. do that. Like, right? like
1: can you imagine? Like no political party right now in, in Canada, except for maybe the Green Party, would ever think about running on a. I don't. Lech- know. I didn't even think the Green Party would. Like yeah, I, I, I don't think don't. they would. I don't think they would. Like, I would, but they would. Like and yet and yet somehow this is this is the. Real Reasonable action as a conservative government uh, to to basic to to basically just you know gut uh, any set of stability for for a for, for a, an entire industry in this country. And so you know it's not a surprise that we lost eighty thousand jobs in August, given how many places got hit by all the all these things. Like that's not in a and that should not be a surprise for anyone. Uh, but we are at we at eleven twenty. So let's uh, let's we'll, we'll come back with a, a more sort of. What are we coming back with, Stefan? We're coming back with a sort of a, a wider conversation uh, about uh, about. Ha- capitalism. Uh, there's sort of that, that article that was in uh, that was in the New York, mag- New York Times magazine mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years, mm-hmm. a couple, of, a couple weeks ago. Uh, that sort of It, was, it, it feels it, like years, doesn't it? It's, it well, it, it's a very long article. So <laughs> <laughs> the fact that we that, that we got through the whole article, I think, is uh, is part of. It. It's like a it's a it's it's a mini thing, and then also the criticism of that article uh, by Naomi Klein and, and sort of the conversation about where what what it really would take uh, to. To, to solve the crisis that we're in uh, which I think actually plays off pretty well from from both Cape Town and, and Ford so we'll we'll jump into that uh, when we get back uh, and if not let's uh let's go to the booth uh Megan what do we got
2: who can say and do the right thing every time when it comes to love?
3: who don't stumble ever once in a while
0: tell me who Welcome back. You're listening to the Green Majority here in CIT and 9.5 FM. Our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners across the country and into outer space uh, as well. And uh, and uh, Stefan's mom today. Yes. Singled out <laughs> arbitrarily. Hi, sevens mom. <laughs> there we go. Uh, Dave, we're going back to you. We're digging in now to uh, a bit of the weeds. And the, the intro I will do for this is that often we bring up stories that will give you a little bit of information from it and then tell you you really should go read the rest of the article. Uh, I think we're going to offer you some relief this week and say, this is probably good enough. It's a very <laughs> long article.
2: Carry on, Dave. Um, yes. So as we all know, on August 1st of this year, The New York Times published a long article by Nathaniel Rich, billed as a history of the United States' failure to deal with climate change in the 1980s. It tracks the well-connected activists and scientists trying to bring the issue to national attention, and the industry leaders and politicians' various responses during meetings, media coverage, and international discussions. The report highlights the infuriating way the findings were discussed between the various players and how those in power, while appearing to grasp the significance of the task, cared mainly about whether they would be dead before they could be blamed for the end of the world. They thus thought of it as a political issue rather than an existential one. It also shows how little our problems have changed. Rich's description of the summer of 1988 is particularly familiar. He writes, It was the hottest and driest summer in history. Everywhere you looked, something was bursting into flames. Two million acres in Alaska incinerated, and dozens of major fires scored the West. Yellowstone National Park lost nearly one million acres. Smoke was visible from Chicago, 1,600 miles away. Nor is the report shy about its disaster statistics. Rich notes how the climate has been warming since 1880, and in the summer of 1988 its effects were already visible. And yet, quote, more carbon has been released into the atmosphere since 1989 than the entire history of civilization preceding it. While pointing out certain flaws of the particular interests at play, Rich wants to argue that humankind is simply not good enough to deal with the issue, but that our relentless optimism could still possibly take us through. It is this blind resignation, followed by blind hope, that has irked many scientists and environmental thinkers for its failure to point to any real reason why we have not dealt with climate change, or to any path for striving forward. Rich concludes that we have failed simply because the human organism is incapable of sacrificing present comforts for future stability. He ends by placating his audience with a celebration of human hope. In doing so, he points to neither industry lobbying nor political opportunism as culprits for the failure. And yet the piece is riddled with clues that suggest a larger picture than what Rich cares to paint. Regarding the ozone hole that swiftly brought international regulation down on chlorofluorocarbons, he writes, quote, after DuPont, by far the world's single largest manufacturer of CFCs, realized that it stood to profit from the transition to replace to replacement chemicals, it abruptly reversed its position, demanding that the United States sign a treaty as soon as possible. In other words, profit, in this case, was the only motivating factor in industry support for environmental protection. Rich quotes Senator Dale Bumpers, who stated in 1988, nobody wants to take on any of the industries that produce the things that we throw up into the atmosphere. But what you have are all these competing interests pitted against our very survival. He also reveals Bush Sr.'s attempt to censor atmospheric scientist James Hansen's testimony, noting that the president campaigned in support of climate action, but later told Congress that they should only pass, pass such legislation that immediately improves the economy. Rich writes, quote, "...the president had never taken a vigorous interest in global warming, and was mainly briefed about it by non-scientists." Bush had brought up the subject on the campaign trail after leafing through a briefing booklet for a new issue that might generate some positive press. After it went public that the White House tried to censor Hansen, Bush's chief of staff, John Sununu, tried to backpedal and pretend that their administration did care, endorsing a plan, quote, to develop full international consensus on non necessary steps to prepare for a formal treaty negotiating process. The scope and importance of this issue are so great that it is essential for the U.S. to exercise leadership. And yet it was the same man who ordered his delegates to quash any binding agreement at a major conference in the Netherlands. Sununu then tells Rich in a recent interview that any binding treaty back then couldn't have happened because nobody wanted it to happen. Rich acknowledges that indus- what industry has done since, writing that, quote, in the US, the dominant narrative for the last century, last quarter century, has concerned the efforts of the fossil fuel industries to suppress science, confuse public knowledge, and bribe politicians. But he also cites political scientists who believe that, quote, democratic societies are constitutionally incapable of dealing with the climate problem. Overall, the piece is well worth reading, but its ending is absurd. Rich concludes, quote, If human beings were really able to take the long view, to consider seriously the fate of civilization decades or centuries after our deaths, we would be forced to grapple with the transience of all we know and love in the great sweep of time. So we have trained ourselves, whether culturally or evolutionarily, to obsess over the present, worry about the medium term, and cast the long term out of our minds. Human nature has brought us to this place. Perhaps human nature will one day bring us through. Rational argument has failed in a rout. In a rebuttal piece for The Intercept, Naomi Klein argues that this apparent confusion around a proper path forward is an illusion created by Rich's obscuration of the reasons we have thus far failed. Klein's culprit is, quote, privatization of the public sphere, deregulation of the corporate sector, and lower corporate taxation paid for with cuts to public spending. She writes, quote, if we really were on the brink of saving ourselves in the 80s, but were swamped by a tide of elite free market fanaticism, one that was opposed by millions of people around the world, then there is something quite concrete we can do about it. We can confront that economic order and try to replace it with something that is rooted in both human and planetary security, one that does not place the quest for growth and profit at all costs at its center. And the good news is that a young and growing movement of green democratic socialists is advancing in the United States with precisely this vision. Klein supports a, quote, democratic eco-socialism with the humility to learn from indigenous teachings about the duties of, to future generations and the interconnection of all life. What this democratic eco-socialism may be is another issue. It is obvious that we as a species have the organizational capacity for a sustainable and peaceable world, but there is a question of how much vision we require in order to build it. Her immediate advocacy appears to be for Western sacrifice. Klein has noted elsewhere, quote, To support fuel conservation during World War II, pleasure driving was virtually eliminated in the UK, and between 1938 and 1944, use of public transit went up by 87% in the U.S. and 95% in Canada. 20 million U.S. households, representing three-fifths of the population, were growing victory gardens in 1943, and their yields accounted for 42% of the fresh vegetables consumed that year. All of these activities together dramatically reduced carbon emissions. Her proof of the need for such drastic action is that, quote, our only hope of keeping warming below the internationally agreed-upon target of two degrees Celsius is for wealthy countries to cut their emissions by somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to ten percent a year. The free market simply cannot accomplish this task. Indeed, this level of emissions reduction has happened only in the context of economic collapse or deep depressions. She advocates transforming the economy to use fewer resources in ways that protect the most vulnerable and burden the most responsible, scaling up low-carbon sectors and scaling down high-carbon sectors. She concludes, however, that, quote, the scale of economic planning and management is entirely outside the boundaries of our reigning ideology. The only kind of contraction our current system can manage is a brutal crash, in which the most vulnerable will suffer most of all. The challenge is not simply that we need to spend a lot of money and change a lot of policies; it's that we need to think differently, radically differently, for those changes to be remotely possible.
1: So there it is. There's the there's the question: Is it us or is it capitalism?
0: I can I can I make a <clears throat> I'd like to make a brief defense of <clears throat> the original author. I'm sorry, I'm bl- suddenly blanking on their name. I don't know. Rich, Rich Nathaniel Rich. <clears throat> Nathaniel Rich. A brief defense of Nathaniel Rents before I ultimately agree with Naomi Klein. Um, <laughs> No, I think it's fair uh, because, like, there's part of it which is that to say, like, the 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 degree to which, uh, first of all, uh, disagreeing with that one point doesn't in any way dissuade the vast majority of the factual information in that first article is incredibly light. So oh, yeah. even if we oh, ultimately. No even if all of us ultimately kind of more agree with Naomi Klein it's more about the conclusion is wrong than anything in the article is wrong well
1: even mm-hmm. in even in Klein's piece itself she notes that the original piece is actually an impressive state of journalism itself mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it is a it is a long winding tale of why this failed and is you know is Captured excellently there's there's two
0: things that a journalist a good journalist should be doing right is one is identify the facts Mm -hmm. and the second one is draw conclusions yes he got an a plus on the first one (laughs) and a B minus on the second (laughs) one. yeah right Uh, so really quickly so the agreement there at any point regardless of corporate money regardless of any of those things regardless of our, our capitalist structure at any point if the voting public had decided if you don't support strong climate change we're going to politically eviscerate you and hang you out in the public square this would have happened. So that's the degree to which he's right, because at any point, technically speaking, the public could have put an end to this at any time. Hmm. Not realistic with humans. At the degree to which where Neomaclade is ultimately right um, comes down to the fact that uh, the, there is an active uh, uh, element of actually changing the system. The quick example I'll do, I'll do about that was uh, Barack Obama ran on, on uh, uh uh, public health care, well, yeah. basically a Canadian healthcare care system. Yeah. And then right as they were going, he had absolute complete power, the same lo- uh, more power or arguably that for that brief window than Trump does now. And we've seen what that sort of power can do. He had more power and he essentially uh, gave up that single payer option voluntarily. Why? Well, because they get massive donations from the healthcare industry and it was politically uh, useful during the the primaries. And then they came out and they didn't just forget about it. They said, well, we'd love to do that, but it's not going to be politically salient, even though the voters were the actual polling was saying it was polling at 70, 75, 78%. So it's a lie. The reason I mentioned that was two days ago, Barack Obama did a speech where he's now, uh, stumping for current Democrats on single-payer healthcare, The time has come, he said. Same as you did nine years ago, A. And B, that's only because you need a win. So it turns out that the politicians will actually do things for you when you have them uh, by the beard, uh, in this case. <laughs> and when you don't, when they think they can win without doing anything for you, you are under the bus, my friend.
1: Uh, like, the what's interesting about... What's interesting, is, you know, to, outside of the, you know, the American, uh, you know, Politics aside, I, I think what, if there's one thing we've actually lacked in this particular particular file and actual uh, and experience, is 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 that you, the purpose, the theoretical purpose of politicians is to lead, is to is to take positions and and move them forward in a way that is useful and effective, and that particular piece has been taken up, no one in power has really decided to actually try to do that within, within this sphere. Uh, at least not within the, the sort of national stage. I think you can make a case for some some more locally staged or people and especially mayors have taken some incredible steps and in some places in Europe have done some other stuff like that. But like within North America, especially and within the places that are really dominated by this capitalist structure, uh, no one has decided to come out and actually be like, okay, everyone, we need to actually deal with this. Let's talk about how we might and how we can do this. You know, the, the idea that like Victory Gardens and, and all these other things that happened in the world in, in, in during World War II to sort of to, to allow us to to carry on and to, to ensure that uh you know that all of the resources that we were actually generating was going to the war and so that people were surviving were here that came from a direct leadership position from the government, it providing me- incentives in many ways to get this done. It was part of a holistic plan to ensure and to take care of everyone, and everyone had to buy in. They were invited to buy in, and they did. Like humans responded to this, and so it's pr- and, and yet sure you could make the ca- Nathaniel Rich could argue that that particular system is set up because it was a a a, a, a threat that was super obvious because there you know, there's a war. But there's no reason why the level of destruction that we're currently seeing in B.C. wildfires uh, or the hurricanes or Hurricane Florence that's currently happening obviously right now or any of these other things could not be used as a similar banner to actually make this case, Mm. to actually bring this up and, and fight for it. And so I think to me where 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 it switches for me is 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 an example to bring it back to Ontario and to bring it back to Ontario climate policy. Uh, and, and, and to, where I ultimately end up on, on, on Klein's side is that the the Ontario government when it, the Ontario Liberals who came in uh, who were in power before before Ford did actually come up and, and come out with a basically we truly do want to deal with climate change in this province and they had a variety of strategies and one of them was the was the Green Energy Act. and the Green Energy Act uh the 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 concept basically was well, we need uh, to massively transition to to renewable energies. So we will provide a a a, a, per, a particular price to people who can create renewable energies. Renewable ter- energy will be will be pretty high, so they, there's an incentive to build it. And as long as you build it in Ontario, you'll get access to this thing. So the idea was like, let's build up our let's build up our internal our internal ability to be manufacturing hub again, because at this point we were still coming out of the 2008 2009 recession. So we had ability to do manufacturing, and, and we really wanted. This this sort of thing move forward and so they created an incentive process to do this and so all of this is really in some ways showing what Nathaniel Rich was saying was not possible right the idea that we were sort of coming together to actually try to deal this being led by our politicians and human nature and what happened capitalism happened the World Trade Organization came in. I believe Japan sued us. I think it was Japan mm. uh, sued um, Ontario because it was against the World Trade Organization's agreement to to require the, the 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 solar panels and wind turbines and renewable energy to be built in Ontario to get access to this thing. That was that was. That was not allowed, and that was not allowed directly because of trade agreements we signed during this time, or like from the from, during this sort of wave of free marketness that Klein identifies which began in late 18, 1980s. and so all of that to me is sort of that's why Klein rings true to me, is that when you experience we here in Ontario experienced a moment when everything looked like it was going in a direction to make this work. And, and introduction that was like going to help the economy was going to reduce emissions and everything like that, and yet this need for free market capitalism uh, undermined the ability to be to have any local manufacturing here, which ultimately then undermined the the whole project, which then sort of led us to where we are now with Ford di- getting rid of cabinetry and everything else like that. Like it's you can follow the line like if there were if if Ford doing this was going to cost you know. Uh, was going to close a couple plants like some true like you know the idea of like how we have like You know if like this is going to close a car plant or something like that I don't think you'd see the same you see the same reaction before it I think he would realize he needs to keep his manufacturing jobs in the city or in, in Ontario But the but the free market capitalism meant that you did not have these the, the, the Same kind of factories built here even though people had planned on doing it Which then meant that we did not get the same benefits we had locally which then meant we didn't get action Which then meant we undid things and and that through line is why I have a hard time believing
0: rich and a pretty easy time believing Klein's, uh, Klein sort of example. Uh, just really quick. Yeah. We got, we got to wrap up yeah. for the end of the section. So my, my closing comment on, on that section was just the idea that I wanted to come back. Cause you said something really good. I wanted to build on just really quickly, which was about the comment about leadership. And <clears throat> what I was thinking about was that, you know, often a really good leader in most cases, you know, nothing can be reduced entirely all the time, but in most cases is doing one of two things. They're they have some facts, or they have something that needs to happen, or they feel that needs to happen, and they'll generate. Their job at that point is to generate consensus, right? So that might, that could take a variety of forms. That might take, hey, we don't, we're not bringing enough to tax money. We're a liberal party. We don't like, uh, you know, we, we know we get hung up for raising taxes, but look, there's an argument for it. So I need to go out and create consensus. That becomes a leader's job: build consensus, or. <clears throat> You might have another situation where you have consensus. The public wants X, Y, or Z. It might be action on climate change. It might be a casino in downtown Toronto. It could be anything, but the the public is calling for something. You have consensus you need to build a plan in that case or, or, or the details, right? You need to, you need the other side of it. You're often coming with one and do, and creating the other. And that's sort of the pass through of a good leader. Uh, somebody like Ford and, and Trump are narcissists. They don't care about actually Im, Im improving things and they just assume people will like them for being strong. And so they don't do either. They don't worry about consensus and they don't worry about facts or plans because it's not about that. It's not actually about progress. It's about the narcissism and it's about them, right? And it's about fetishizing power right Trudeau is the opposite he has neither he has no interest in building consensus and he has no plan he's just a blank slate of I'm going to be a good person and I'm just going to take whatever wind is currently coming at me in the middle so neither of these people are leaders neither of those ends of that spectrum are leaders we need people who can listen to facts and create consensus or hear consensus and come up with a plan that's based on facts and if you can't do either of those things get the heck out of office that's the end of section two we're going to go to music break Megan what do you got for us we're back you're listening to <clears throat> excuse me you're listening to the green majority here on ciut 89.5 fm time for the exciting conclusion i think i've mentioned being a fan of radio dramas previously yeah. Steph. <laughs> uh the exciting conclusion of this week's episode of the uh, green majority we're going to have uh she's going to wait for us for a second because we're going to go back to dave for more story but i just want to introduce our uh, correspondent lauren who's on the phone Lauren you're there Yes, I am. Wonderful. All right. So, just hang on a second. We're going to get. uh, We're picking up for the listeners. We're picking up continuing talk on these uh, articles. Naomi Klein. We're. I think we're moving on to some other articles, but we're staying in that realm of sort of very big picture and uh, climate stuff. Lauren, uh, we'll have you on standby, and uh, Dave, take it away.
2: Yes. So, in the midst of all this, the magazine Forbes is also taking stabs at capitalism, blaming it for the ecological crisis and recommending corporate restructuring, but without saying how precisely this restructuring will help the climate. Democratization of the workforce does not guarantee environmental protection unless the stakeholders, the workers, and the communities in which the companies do their business are given real power and clear science. The success of a business must rely upon the success of its workers and the local community. Noam Chomsky argues that we have to allow businesses to move beyond the profit requirement for survival, which necessitates externalities or the exploitation of workers and the environment. The idea is that if a business requires profits in order to survive, it has to externalize and therefore exploit. It has to get more out of the system than it puts in, which pushes the costs into the public sphere and future generations, neither of whom may have benefited from that particular process. Some point to the Cleveland model as an example of this kind of restructuring, wherein anchor institutions like schools and hospitals purchase goods and services from worker cooperatives which hire locally. These institutions, as well as the municipal government, use their money to invest in nonprofits, which then bolster the worker co-ops. There is also the Mondragon Corporation in Spain, dedicated to, quote, open admission, democratic organization, the sovereignty of labor, <clears throat> instrumental and subordinate nature of capital, participatory management, payment solidarity, intercooperation, inter- social transformation, universality, and education. The system requires democratically agreed upon wage ratios between the executive and labor branches. Its managers are therefore paid much less than the market average, and its workers are paid much more. It does seem that corporate managers would have much less power and interest in skewing science and democratic dialogue if they a. had less money to spend on such things, b. were legally beholden to stakeholders, i.e. workers and the local community, and c. did not require profits to survive as organizations. Oh, right.
1: So I'm going to take a wild guess and think, I think I know which side of this of this conversation you're going to fall on, Lauren. Um, you know, perhaps <laughs> given last week when we, when you said to burn capitalism to the ground. However, uh, I am, uh, I'm still, uh, interested in sort of the, the, the wider framing and, and your thoughts on this.
3: I didn't realize I was, I was so easy to read. Uh, <laughs> I, I apologize if I'm not, if I'm not as exciting as, as listeners were hoping we would be in this last segment, but, um, yeah. Uh, also, just want to comment on how how sort of fancy and intellectual and heady we're being on a Friday morning. So, like, yeah, right? props to, <laughs> to David for bringing some Noam Chomsky on. <laughs> um, yeah, on, of course, I'm in agreement with like who who'd have thought that I would ever agree with something that Forbes put out? Um, but but uh, like it's it's true. Uh, the idea that our entire system is based on. Exponential growth, um, and bettered is is obviously uh, sort of the root of all evils when it comes to capitalism. Uh, I know when I was reading the Rich and Klein articles, full disclosure to listeners, I have not read all 60 pages of the Rich piece. Um, It was an entire issue of New York Times Magazine, and although I read decent chunks of it, maybe it's a testament to my lack of dedication. Anyway. (laughs) Um, I think but, it's a uh, testament
0: to your will to live. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: but um, but no, I was as, as as I was reading the Rich article, um, he was very persuasive in a lot of ways. It was it was really, uh, it was it was interesting from an informational standpoint. I learned a lot, and also he he does kind of really rope you into this idea that it is it is absolutely because of human nature, and it's just like. Some some intrinsic faults in who we are as a species uh, that prevent us from having the foresight and and, and I don't know multi generational empathy uh, to to deal with climate change properly. Um, and then and then Klein comes in and completely sort of shuts that down and says that no, it's it's not human nature. It's it's just human nature under climate change or under um, neoliberalism and unfettered capitalism. And and as you've all mentioned, I think I'm inclined to to agree with Klein, um, especially when she she brings in arguments looking at uh, other cultures, uh, perhaps in, in the South or, or in, in other parts of the world where their systems aren't so based on neoliberalism and capitalism, that, that they don't have these issues of sort of a lack of multigenerational empathy. Uh, I, we often, or not we, but like people often mention the idea that in, in some indigenous cultures in, in North America, um, they refer to the idea that a practice uh, needs to be sustainable for up to seven generations, and that that's lacking in sort of modern Western culture. And I think I think that's sort of a, a, a really simple thing to point to uh, when drawing upon criticism for Rich's peace is that this isn't human nature necessarily that's stopping us from meaningful climate action. It's it's just human nature under this economic system we've set up for
2: ourselves.
1: Yeah. I think that's that you, you touched on something there that's I think really important to highlight, which is a major issue I sort of had with uh, with the sort of position that 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 Rich was taking is that it really did. It sort of it, it took it took a a very small subset of human population and then acted as if that small subset was indicative of the rest of civilization. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, it was sort of like, well, we couldn't. The United States couldn't figure it out, so therefore, obviously, nobody could. <laughs> and and that just sort of that fundamentally feels you know like that that's it's flawed and i think it's flawed in a way that a lot of environmentalist thinking often is you know especially sort of when you think about sort of the traditional more more the the early like the late 80s and 90s environmentalism that sort of thought that you could you know ngo your way out of this problem Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. really did in many ways come at it as if it's just a we just need to tell people enough things. And, and if we educate the populace, then this will be solved. Uh, and then, and then they, and then and they, and by doing so became co-opted within this sort of, um, within this, this wider range of, of, uh, of, of donors and everything else, you know, you end up these, these, these companies that are, you know, fighting for nature conservancy, but being funded by oil companies. Um, and, and, and I think, what we what we've seen in the last maybe 10 years is and especially since i would say the i think you can see a shift in in uh, in 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 sort of more mainstream environmentalist thinking in the early 2010s um or tw- or the tw- the 20 teens oh, there's somebody, whatever that word is for um is is a shift towards actually acknowledging the fact that you know that indigenous populations have been doing this for you know hundreds of thousands of years um, and that, and that, and that putting sort of frontline people first is the actual, that the like, climate justice is the solution, not sort of just, you know, cleaned up capitalism.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. You, you really, really hit the nail on the head there because it's it's true uh, to a degree in certain sort of areas of the environmentalist community, we still do have this idea that as long as we educate people and if, oh, if people only knew better then they would, then they would act better. and it, A, we know that's not true. People aren't, humans aren't rational actors. Um, But also, that 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 isn't really the problem, that the solution isn't your individual action. The solution isn't going out, although it's it's a really lovely thing to do to to take your friends out and go clean up on a park, go clean up a park on a Saturday morning. But that ultimately, that's, that's not the solution. The solution isn't cleaning up the park. The solution is not having the litter there in the first place because we shouldn't be using, for instance, I know we talk about plastics all the time, but Plastic shouldn't be in the industrial system to begin with, um, and that's not an individual action thing. That's a, that's a regulation and, and rethinking of, I, I don't know, political and cultural ethos.
1: So. Yeah, and, and and that, and I think you know, Dave is a uh, Dave and I have, been, have this ongoing discussion this week of this of this author. It was the book that we were that that, that you were say.
2: Oh, it was a horrendous title. I don't recall it. Okay, what was yeah. author's name Lee Phillips.
1: <laughs> Lee Phillips. Yeah. So don't Google him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it, it sort of struck me as it was a it's basically an environmentalist book. Quote, it's acting as if it's an environmentalist anti capitalist book that is basically advocating that you can that we can growth our way out of this problem. That we can consume our way out of this problem Mm. that the solution is basically to trip double triple quadruple down on a technocratic solution um, While also vaguely saying that he's also still an anarchist.
2: It's 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 not a good book But he he advocates for for unionization and worker uh, control. Yeah. Yeah, But also saying that growth uh, must not end
1: Right. Yeah, it's sort of taking this weird it's it's taking that sort of stance that that the old way of understanding sort of left-wing politics uh, is is universally solvable. We'll solve this problem. Um, rather than, but that, but that, those key messaging it felt like was that it's still fun to have all the stuff we have so we should keep having all the stuff we have. And right. and, and that, if
0: that irks me. We, we all know how much I like thought experiments. Uh, hey, I'm addicted to cocaine. You know what the solution to that problem is? Secure an unlimited supply of cocaine.
2: <laughs> problem
1: solved. <laughs> yeah, like, like and, and I think, and I, I do think that that, I think what we're experiencing within these two articles and, and more largely within, within the movement is the sort of the push and pull of these two concepts, right? You know, like Klein is legitimately and openly saying that we need to start figuring out ways to, you know, to, 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 uh, to stop the projects as, as we have now and to find ways to, you know, create some sort of um, different world where we're actually doing different things. And, and and yet it feels like uh, the the sort of old guard remains of the belief that actually we can, as long as we get like a, a couple things in, we can then continue on doing exactly what we're doing. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. I feel like that we're in a moment where I think, I think it's a little tipping now, especially considering that the, those people who are doing true uh, climate activism right now, and so those who sort of, who are sort of controlling that narrative, I think have, 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 have embraced this sort of new way of thinking of putting climate justice first. But I definitely think we're still seeing sort of waves of of sort of the 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 old guard still trying to convince us that no it's just a technocratic solution that we can get that, that, that we can get out of this without, without giving up, you know, like, as you mentioned about the idea of like, it's nice to go to clean up the park. The problem is like, you probably drove to clean up the park. Like the, pro, like the problem is not that, you know, that you can, you can clean the park as much as you like, but if you're still driving to work every day, uh, not that you like, you, again, our system currently requires you to do that. So we have to find a way to, to make that less destructive. And that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> no,
3: exactly. It's, yeah, it's, We're we're sort of past that point where, I don't know, for the longest time, the idea was you can still keep all your lights on. You just have to put in these better light bulbs. And and I think people are finally starting to to come to terms with the idea that, unfortunately, this is going to be... Uh, it's, it's not going to be quite the painless process that that we hoped it would be 15 years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah and, and, and it, 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 What's frustrating is it could certainly have been less painful you mm-hmm. know, Had and, and also it, it what's frustrating often about about some of these conversations and, and and especially with this 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 book that Lee Phillips which again don't Google um, yeah. Is is that it feels like you're comparing just current life right now to? doing stuff in ignoring the fact that current life right now includes constant wildfires, hurricanes, and a de- de- degrading planet.
2: Well, the idea the idea is that poor people still don't have enough, and so any regression to a, a, a lower standard yeah. of material living is anti-poor. That's the problem. That's his right.
0: Yeah. Because the only possible way to prevent people from starving to death from poverty is to, uh, well, we can't take it from the rich people. We just need to generate so much mm. that the crumbs that are left from the rich people are enough to pay for the poor people.
1: Mm. Yeah. Or, or even just, yeah, yeah. Or even just, even if you accept that you need to take some money from rich people to give it back, like, like that's the thing about the center question, right? Is that eventually, like, we live in a world where it remains true that everything has to cost more. <laughs> And then the question is, how do you ensure people are then are then kept are protected and are, 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 are dealt with in a just way? Like those. Th- but but not doing anything or presuming that we can technologically solve our way out of this problem uh, doesn't doesn't really get us anywhere further. Um, we are about three minutes left in the show. Uh, so I want to give uh, a last word to Lauren uh, and then we'll do a readout. So, uh, cool. Lauren, if you got I'll give you a half second. I'll say a couple words uh, before you go to, but uh, take
3: it away. Okay. Um, one thing, I do just want to reassure listeners that um, I do not promote a socialism based on austerity. Uh, that's not cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, uh, hearkening back to a discussion that y'all were having in an earlier segment about the uh, cap-and-trade um, lawsuits that's being launched by Greenpeace and Ecojustice, um, consultations have been opened up online for bill four which is the bill to cancel cap and trade so if listeners want to go to the environmental registry of ontario website um, you can comment on the passing of that bill um whether or not that makes a difference obviously remains to be seen, but if you want to take a little bit of action in your own way, that's a great way to do so. Yeah. Um, While you're
0: doing that, be civil, because the in this particular context, if nothing else, uh, just because you want people to read these comments. So just to add that additional <laughs> qualifier, please <laughs> please <point>. add civil <laughs> comments on there. Well, Or release one civil and one uncivil. You know? Sure.
1: Yeah. You can, you can, yeah, you can, do, can both. do both. You can, commun- <laughs> you, you can comment twice. Right. Uh, yeah, I believe you're right. I think they opened it yesterday. It's about 30 days you have to comment um, before they tell you that there's suspended spending your bill of rights. That's right. uh, so uh, I'm sorry that we didn't end this on a p- more positive note for the listener who says it was the best.
0: I do hope it was at least interesting. Uh, I was amused. Oh, there we go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good green week. Uh, take care, and we'll speak to you real soon. Take care.